I want to begin our study for tonight, and we are going to look at this New Testament character by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras, and specifically, we're going to look at his example of prayer. Our subtitle is Epaphras, a champion of prayer. You could even word that, a, a prayer warrior. We sometimes use that term. I, I hesitate to use it because of all the baggage that's often associated with that title, prayer warrior, because of how that's been hijacked by, uh, by uh, certain elements uh, to make prayer something that it is not. But when we talk about prayer biblically and define it biblically, Epaphras really was a prayer warrior. He was a champion of prayer, a model for us in prayer. And as we think of the kind of men that Paul wanted around him, the kind of men that Paul wanted in his midst, the kind of men that Paul trusted, Epaphras was one of these men, not only because he had skill in evangelism, not only because he was a wonderful servant, but because also he was a man of prayer. And Paul, as we're going to see, specifically brings to our attention this man and his prayer life. As we go through it, we're going to notice four things about the prayers of Epaphras. First of all, we're going to note that it was his prayer life was strenuous in manner. Number two, we're going to note that his prayers were focused on others. Number three, we'll note that his the, the, the prayers of, of Epaphras were transcendent in content, transcendent in content, and number four, that they were theocentric in spirit. They had a God-centeredness that, that permeated these prayers, and we're going to see this from one sentence that Paul states about the prayer life of Epaphras. In summarizing this man's life, D. Edmund Hebert states it this way, among all the friends and co-workers of Paul, Epaphras holds the unique distinction of being the only one whom Paul explicitly commended for his intercessory prayer ministry. And as we go through this man's life, I want you to notice that that you may think that perhaps some of these men that we study in this series are, are men whose lives have no analogy to yours. There's, there's no similarity. You're not a, you're not a preacher. You're not a pastor. You're not ordained. And you might say, because of that, this is all kind of not relevant to me. But when we look at what this man Epaphras was all about, particularly in his prayer life, these are things which all of us here, no matter what status we occupy and different responsibilities in the church, all of us here are to emulate this, and especially for those of you who may not be called to preach the word in any kind of formal setting, this is one area where you can have a very significant ministry. And I hope that as a result of tonight's study, this will prompt you to realize the great opportunity you have through intercession. Now, as we talk about Epaphras, we need to note a few things about his background just to help us understand how he was related to Paul. The name Epaphras is a shortened name. Uh, it's the shortened form of the name Epaphroditus. And that name Epaphroditus means honored by Aphrodite, a Greek goddess. Uh, and, and first of all, it's important to note that this Epaphras that we're going to study tonight 
is not the same person as a biblical character named Epaphroditus that we read of in connection to the church in Philippi. There's an Epaphroditus mentioned in the letter to the Philippians and an Epaphras mentioned in relationship to the Colossian church. And even though their name really is the same, they are different people. But what we can tell is that this name Epaphras, the short form of Epaphroditus honored by Aphrodite, shows us that this man grew up in a pagan background. His parents called him one who was honored by Aphrodite. I mean, that was not a Jewish idea. So this man is a Gentile, and he grew up undoubtedly in this pagan environment uh, in a family that honored this particular Greek goddess. He is only mentioned in two of Paul's letters, Colossians and Philemon. He probably, as we can tell from Colossians 4 verse 12, was a native of the city of Colossae. Paul says when he writes to the Colossians that he is one of your number. In other words, one of, 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 of among you, one from among you. And so we can best speculate that he was raised in the city of Colossae, which wasn't a very important city. In fact, if you look on, a, on the map that I've shown, I know you, because of the light there, you can't really see it that well. On the left-hand side of the map, you see Ephesus highlighted. Ephesus was the chief city in the province of Asia Minor on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And if you'd follow a river valley, you'd go 120 miles east-southeast to a particular valley. Uh, And this valley called the Lycus Valley had three cities that were well-known in their region, uh, the cities were Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. And, and you've probably heard of those names before. Certainly we've heard of the church at Laodicea from Revelation chapter 3. So this is relatively the area, 120 miles between Ephesus and, and Colossae. And Paul writes to the church that is situated there in Colossae, but we have no record that he ever visited there. Like I said, Colossae wasn't an important city. Uh, But what we can surmise is that Paul's ministry on his third missionary journey, if you kind of remember some of the chronology that we've talked about, on his third missionary journey, when he spends three years in the city of Ephesus, Luke records that Paul's ministry there in Ephesus was so significant that he says at the end of verse 10 that all who lived in Asia, that's the Roman province of Asia, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so what we can surmise from that was that Paul's ministry was so effective, particularly his training of disciples in the school of Tyrannus, that the word of God was brought to other cities in that whole region. And Paul didn't have to travel there himself. He trained the men who took the gospel there. And it's probably Epaphras, who is one of those students who sat at the feet of Paul in the school of Tyrannus, who heard the gospel there, who then went back uh, to Colossae and brought the gospel not only to Colossae, but most likely to Hierapolis and 
Laodicea as well. We read that in Colossians 1, verses 6 to 8, where Paul says to the Colossian church that the gospel has come to you just as in all the world, also it is continually bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, what we can take from that is that Epaphras studied with Paul, or under Paul, in Ephesus, around the years of AD 52 to 55, when Paul was on that third missionary journey, when he focused on the city of Ephesus, he went back and planted the church in Colossae. But when Paul writes to the Colossian church, it's about eight years later. And what had happened was this, that about eight years, or maybe as little as five, but maybe as many as ten years had passed. The church had already been growing, but by this time, there were certain threats that had come to assault the church in Colossae. Epaphras, the evangelist of the church, the evangelist of Colossae, was deeply concerned about the threat of, of Greek philosophy and the threat of, of Jewish practices, Jewish legalism, and the threat of mystical religions, that, that there was this temptation towards syncretism. And Epaphras was concerned, and so he wanted to talk to his mentor. Well, at that time, his mentor was in prison in Rome under his first Roman imprisonment. And so Epaphras travels 1,300 miles from Colossae to visit Paul in prison to update him on the state of the church in Colossae and to ask for his counsel. So at this time, Paul writes to the Colossians. It's also at this time, right together, right in the same time period, that he writes to Philemon, who was also a member of that community in Colossae, and that's why we have these two references or these two letters that make reference to Epaphras. One in uh, one letter in the Colossian letter, and one in the letter to Philemon. Now, before we get to, to the description of Epaphras's prayers, I, I do want to look for just a moment at the kind of descriptions that Paul gives regarding Epaphras. These are so fascinating. And I want to look at three in particular, three ways that tell us more about this man, Epaphras, and how Paul viewed him. And again, these are things that we can attempt and strive and pray to emulate in our lives by the grace of God. First of all, when Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, he, he talks about how, he, how the Colossians had learned the gospel from Epaphras, and then he calls Epaphras our beloved fellow bondservant, or, or literally our beloved fellow slave, our fellow slave. This is a fascinating term. Doulos. And Paul uses the term doulos, the term slave, uh, regularly in his letters to refer to the status of the Christian. You see, redemption didn't free the Christian up from any kind of ownership. Redemption doesn't free the Christian up from any kind of responsibilities. 
and obligations. Instead, as Paul looked at it, he, he regularly used this term slave to describe what had happened to the, to the Christian. The, the Christian has been sl- saved from the mastery of sin, from the slave owner of sin, but now he's, he belongs to the Lord. We heard that even in the song, the concept of redeemer, our precious redeemer who has gone into the marketplace of sin and has purchased us out of that marketplace, and now we belong to him. And so Paul uses that regularly. But what's fascinating here is that Paul takes this term slave and calls Epaphras a fellow slave. It's very rare in Paul's writings. And he does this to describe association. Essentially what Paul does is he says, Epaphras and I are slaves together. Paul directly associates himself and has no problem doing so He associates himself with Epaphras and Epaphras' attitude of complete submission and obedience to the Lord. Essentially, Paul says, you see, Epaphras, he is a slave and I am with him. We're slaves together of Christ. Another term that's used even in that text of Colossians 1 verses 7 to 8 is this. Not only is he a a beloved fellow slave, but Paul describes him as a faithful servant of Christ. And that phrase, servant, there is the phrase diakonos. And and really, if we take the term diakonos, and you know that that's the term that we get the word deacon from, a diakonos was one who served as an intermediary in a transaction. We sometimes can call it the diakonos a table waiter. There's a cook and there's one who eats. And, and the diakonos is the one who completes the transaction. That's what a, a, a diakonos does. That's what a deacon does. And while Paul uses this term sometimes to refer to those who hold the office of deacon, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 and following, here he uses it to refer to one who speaks the word of God. And he describes Epaphras as one who was simply a, 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 a one who completed a transaction. He didn't invent the message. He didn't alter the message. He received the message from Christ. This was Christ's gospel And he simply communicated it as it was. He brought it to the world. And therefore, he was called a a faithful servant of Christ. He's one who serves as an intermediary between Christ and the world. What a wonderful picture of this man, Epaphras. And then thirdly, if we go to Philemon, we have another interesting designation or description. Epaphras is called my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Again, what Paul does is he takes the word for prisoner and he adds to that term prisoner a a prefix which emphasizes association. They're together prisoners. That's the idea. Paul is again emphasizing the fact that he's not just a prisoner, but Epaphras is with him there in prison. And that raises a lot of questions. Scholars have debated, what what does this mean? Some have even suggested that when Epaphras went to Rome to visit Paul, who was under house arrest, that Epaphras fell victim to the hostility of the Roman authorities and that they even put Epaphras in chains. Now, I don't think that that's the idea that 
is communicated by that. I think rather what that refers to is the fact that when Epaphras arrived in Rome, Paul could not leave his home where he was, where he was situated. He was under house arrest. And Paul could not leave for a period of two years. Epaphras arrives. And what does Epaphras do? He takes it upon himself to minister to Paul's needs. Epaphras gives up his rights, his freedoms, and he lives there in that same place with Paul. He has the freedom to go out and get food. He has the freedom to go and get to work for money and to take care of those needs. And he makes himself a servant of Paul. And so Paul calls him my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. But what we get from this, these terms, especially those that have this idea of association, is that Paul loves to identify with others. Understand this about the Apostle Paul. He's not some lone ranger who, who, said, who thinks he can do it on his own. And if we look at Paul as a picture of a, an ideal man, uh, one who's, who's biblical in his masculinity, notice that this, this is not the picture of a man who's isolated. He is bringing men into his circle. And he is not at all afraid to associate with others and and to share his needs with others and to have them minister to him. One, one writer says this, The dearest of all ties for Paul is to find men sharing things with him. The work, the, quote, athletic, unquote, life, the, the yoke, the slavery, the imitation, these are all expressions of Paul's relation with Jesus Christ, the very essence of his life how much more it is to him when he finds his friends standing with him in that great loyalty. That's the Apostle Paul. As he stood faithful for the Lord, he wanted men beside him doing the same thing. And that's what we have to understand as we we think of the brotherhood of believers, that we are not individuals who stand alone. We stand together together. Paul demonstrated that as a portrait, and that's what should take place in all of our thinking as we think of what our responsibilities and privileges are with one another. We stand together with each other for these great truths of the gospel. Now, with that said, let's look at Epaphras and his prayer life. And like I said, it's really found in basically one verse, Colossians 4 verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there because I'm going to be referring to these words in this verse for a few more moments here as we now come to the crux of the matter here. But let me read Colossians 4, verse 12 to 13. Here's what Paul says of Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Of this text, one writer said this, Colossians 4 verses 12 to 13 may well be called his diploma of success in the ministry. Let's look at these now, this, these words in chapter 4, verse 12 in particular. And the first one that we, the first 
characteristic of his prayer life that we have to note here is that it was strenuous in manner, in manner, strenuous in manner. Look again at verse 12. Paul describes Epaphras as one who is always laboring earnestly in his prayers, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. This was a a continual habitual pattern in in his life. But what's especially noteworthy here is the word that, that is translated laboring earnestly. It's the word agonizomai, and you immediately recognize that. The verb agonizomai, it's the root from which we get the English word to agonize. It's the same root, agonize, agony. The term was common in the realm of athletics. This was a, a common word to describe the kind of investment that athletes would would place in their efforts. They would agonize. This was no easy thing. Just picture, you know, Greco-Roman uh, wrestling. Some of you may have even engaged in that in your high school days. That's, that's the picture where there's this strenuous pushing. The, the, the muscles are strained for long periods as, as you try to, 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 to take some advantage out of your opponent. And this is what Epaphras was doing in the context of his prayers, laboring earnestly. You could define it as a strenuous and costly activity. It was hard work. It left him sore, you could say, strained. And this defeats the idea that prayer is some kind of, some kind of euphoria. It's especially common in, in kind of the, the mystical elements of Christianity today that real prayer is the kind of prayer where you kind of lose your wits and you kind of ascend to the seventh heaven. And that's real prayer. It's, it's, it's euphoric. It's ecstatic. It brings this wonderful feeling. But that's not how Epaphras experienced prayer. For him, prayer was hard work. He put all kinds of effort and energy in it. It was blood, sweat, and tears. That's what prayer was for Epaphras. And that's biblical prayer. It's not this easy stuff that we often hear of. And some of you are saying, well, I can identify with that. I don't find prayer easy. Well, you're right. It's not. It's a battle. It is a battle. You're you're talking about, if you're praying rightly, you're talking about issues of vast eternal importance, the glory of God, the souls of men. That's not an easy matter, and and you certainly shouldn't expect that praying those kinds of things will, will be easy. They weren't for Epaphras, and he was ready to go through it. He was ready to agonize in his prayers to work hard, to discipline himself, to expend all kinds of energy, to pay the price of true biblical intercession. And this concept of agony is, is not unknown to Paul himself. If, if we would look at Colossians 1, verses 28 to 29, just a few chapters earlier in the letter to the Colossians, Paul describes his philosophy of ministry. He says, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. He says, for this purpose I also labor. And here's the verb again, striving, agonizing, laboring strenuously according to his power 
which mightily works in me. Paul agonized in his ministry of the word, and, and we can see that Epaphras, on his part, agonized in his intercession. And here's an encouragement for you men. Some of you may, may not minister the word of God as Paul did it by any stretch, or, or some of you may not stand behind the pulpit here or, or any other pulpit here at Grace. But don't think that the, the concept of hard work in ministry is then, is then closed for you. Not at all. You can enter the hard work of the ministry the way that Epaphras did through his praying. And that this, just like the preaching of the word of God, is one of the means that God uses to accomplish his purposes. The means of the preaching of the word of God and the means of agonizing prayer. That that word spread and have an impact. In fact, when we talk about agonizing prayer, we're brought immediately back to the prayers of Christ himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, verse 44, we read this, and being in agony, same root word, being in agony, he, Jesus, was praying very fervently to the point where his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Great spiritual battle there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Christ was agonizing in prayer. One missionary once said, prayer is the gymnasium of the soul. And not a gymnasium where you go to have a lot of fun, just kind of shoot the ball around. No, it's, it's the place where you get a very hard, painful workout. Prayer is the gymnasium of the soul. And, and we know that it's, it's hard work, it's a spiritual battle, and I like what John Bunyan once said about the struggle in prayer, to, to really practice intercessory prayer. Here's this great Puritan pastor, John Bunyan, saying this, Oh, the starting holes that the heart hath in the time of prayer. None knows how many byways the heart hath and back lanes to slip away from the presence of God. Kind of a complex way of saying, we, we, we know all the kinds of reasons and excuses why we can't hold a prayer for more than five minutes. That's our, our challenge. And, and that's because, men, prayer is hard work. In the same way that a pastor will spend agonizing hours poring over a text, trying to understand it so that he might, he might communicate it faithfully, so we can spend that kind of agony in the practice of prayer. Paphras' prayers were strenuous. They were strenuous in nature. Secondly, they were focused on others. They were focused on others. Go again back to Colossians 4, verse 12, and, and in, as, as, as well as verse 13, we read this. Epaphras greets you, always laboring earnestly. Now, notice this. Always laboring earnestly for who? For himself? No. For you in his prayers. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for himself? No. For you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras' prayers were focused on others and not self. Now, now sometimes we can get the first point. We, we can do the strenuous activity of prayer or at least be progressing in that, but when we evaluate the content of the prayers or the focus of those prayers and really take an honest assessment of them, sometimes those prayers are all about self. 
Lord, deliver me, deliver me from this hard circumstance. Uh, Lord, give me this, this thing that I want or I think I need. And, and we fill our prayers and focus so much of our praying on self, on what will be better for us, what we think we need. A new job, a new car, a new house. And, and you just go down the list. Let's admit it, so many of our prayers relate to those things of temporal value and they're self-centered. But for Epaphras, they were prayers for others. Prayers for you. Prayers for you, for you, and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Although he's 1,300 miles away in Rome, the object of his intercession was, was not his own predicament, but it was the real needs of the churches in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. You see, prayer is an opportunity to express love, but so many of us fail to do that because we turn our prayers inward. We turn the focus on us. But when we learn to turn the focus of our praying on others, we can experience the, the, greatest, the greatest expression of Christian love. Again, D. Edmund Hebert said this, love finds its highest employment. Get this. Maybe if you remember a statement from tonight's, uh, tonight's study, it's this one. Love finds its highest employment in praying for those it loves. Prayer is the noblest service that a Christian, that Christian love can render. Even Spurgeon said, no man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. And so we think of that, how can we be engaged in ministry? And again, our, our, our minds immediately go to, you know, those public things, the speaking, those leadership roles of making decisions and so on. But let's not miss a more fundamental way of ministry, a more fundamental way of expressing true Christian love. And that is in an exercise that all of us can do. And that's in the exercise of prayer. Another writer said this, Souls are precious in the sight of the pleader, when for their sake he counts not the pain of such intercession too great a price for their perfecting. You know, if we really do love each other, and if we really do love the church, and if we're serious about ministry, the opportunity is right before us in the ministry of intercession, and that will be the way that we can attain the heights of Christian love. We pray for one another. Number three, Epaphras' prayers were transcendent in content. So not only were they strenuous in nature, not only were they focused on others, not himself, but they're transcendent in content. They, they transcended the the, the natural, the temporal, the immediate realm. And again, we need special challenge here because, again, if we look at the content of our prayers, they often are focused, even if they are focused on others, they're focused on things of temporal significance. And again, we are commanded to pray for daily bread. Let's not get that wrong. We are commanded to pray for our our, our physical needs, because by doing that, we give glory to God because we recognize him as the creator and provider of every good gift. 
But let's move beyond just praying for those things. In our prayers in the groups, our prayers individually, our prayers in our families, our prayers beyond, should always have this, this, this natural tendency to, to want to quickly get past the, the temporal things and to look beyond to the eternal things, the things of, that, that, that really matter in life. And that's what we see with Epaphras. Notice how he was praying. Paul says, Epaphras, he sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in, in his prayers. And then you have a statement that defines the content. And as, as short as this statement is, it's profound. This is what the content of his praying was. That you may stand perfect and fully assured. Now, when was the last time we prayed that for someone? That when we thought of how we could minister or help someone, we thought, I need to pray that they would stand perfect and fully assured. The content of Epaphras' prayers is particularly expressed by this statement, that you may stand. He was praying that the Colossians and that those in the church in Hierapolis and Laodicea as well, that, that those believers whom he knew by face, by name, that they would be established, that they'd be firm, particularly in reference to the faith, that in light of all the challenges, the threats out there by philosophy and Jewish legalism and mysticism, that that Epaphras was focused on praying that in the midst of the storm, in the midst of all the cultural influences, in the midst of the, the challenge by the flesh, that these dear believers would stand established in the faith. That they would not be tossed here and there by every strange wind of doctrine that would come through. They'd not be affected by the, the cultural, the, 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 the latest cultural fads that come onto the scene. And he further defines this in two ways. He says, first of all, that they would stand perfect. And that word perfect is probably better translated as mature or complete. That, that they would stand with everything that they need. That, that there would be a, a, a knowledge that was full and complete and, and mature. That's what they prayed for. Not just that they'd have a deliverance from any kind of hardship. No, they stand in the midst of the hardship with a maturity that was necessary. That's what he prayed for. And secondly, he prayed that they would be fully assured, that they would be persuaded, that they'd be convinced that the truths of the faith wouldn't just be abstract ideas, theoretical notions, but rather that those believers would stand firm, that they'd be mature, not like children tossed here and there, and that they would be fully convinced, fully convicted, fully persuaded that the gospel is true, that the word of God is authoritative, that it's perfect, that it supplies everything that, that I need for life and godliness, and that I would be so convinced in it that nothing would shake me and that I'd be a beacon of that truth to the world. That's what he was praying for. He was praying for this full assurance of understanding, this full conviction that they would not be naive or doubtful. And sometimes we so fail badly on this and, and, and we pray for the wrong things. Our, our prayers aren't transcendent 
And we pray for deliverance from trials or deliverance from difficulties or that these problems would just be taken away by the Lord. And instead, we ought to be praying that, no, Lord, in the midst of this difficulty, Lord, please make that brother fully convinced in the truths of your word. We can't ascend to a higher level of praying than than that. Certainly, Epaphras himself had learned this transcendent focus from Paul. I'm not going to go through these prayers, but when you look at Paul's prayers, you look at what he prayed for, for the churches, he had this transcendence. He transcended above the immediate temporal circumstances, those material things, and he prayed for what was most important. And and these are not things that would be just important for later. Paul, as well as Epaphras, knew that if he prayed for those transcendent things, it would deliver them from the temporal problems. Fourthly, it was theocentric in spirit. Epaphras' prayer life was theocentric in spirit. And we'll just end with this final statement in verse 12 where Paul says that Epaphras was laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured. And the context of all of that is in all the will of God. He had this Godward direction to his prayers that it all revolved around God and God's will. After all, Epaphras himself was a slave of God. Paul called him that, a slave of God, a doulos. And so for Paul, for Epaphras, he, he wanted the, those believers in Colossae to have that same attitude and that they would be perfect and fully assured in all the will of God, that God would be supreme in their lives, that he'd be sovereign in their understanding, and that their lives would revolve around that will of God. This was the nature of Epaphras and his prayers. What about you? We do not want to just be hearers of the word. We must be doers as well. What about your prayers? Are they strenuous in manner? Do you agonize in your praying? Are they focused on others or do you focus on your own needs as of primary importance? Number three, are they transcendent in content or are they pretty mundane? Praying for really small things. Number four, are they theocentric in spirit? Is there a Godwardness to them that is wrapped up that all your requests in some way go directly towards the glory of God? Be in prayer and contemplation over these things. Next Wednesday, we're going to have a prayer evening. We had one of these in the fall. We're going to do another one. I encourage you to invite all kinds of men to this event. It's going to be another wonderful time as we pray together. And as we do that, I want us to prepare our hearts for praying the right way next Wednesday when we get together. That it would be strenuous. That we'd be sweating in our prayers. Just don't tell facilities that we're sweating in here. I don't think they'd like that. But it would be focused on others. That it would be transcendent in content, and there would be a theocentric spirit that would envelop our praying. One final word. If you want to do some reading on this, a highly recommended resource, especially as it relates to Paul, is a book by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul. 
a call to spiritual reformation. You can get it in the bookshack, get it on Amazon. He works through the prayers of Paul, and it is one of the best books you'll find on the topic of prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Epaphras. On the one hand, it convicts us, and it makes us want to almost give up. But at the same time, it encourages us because Epaphras was just an ordinary man. We don't even read very much about him in the New Testament. He wasn't any great leader in church history who has his place among the greats. He was just an ordinary man, and yet he was able to, by your grace, achieve this kind of maturity in prayer. And that encourages us. Because that means we can get there too. And I pray that you do work in all of our lives to renew our interest in this topic, to convict us of our, our absenteeism in the throne room, motivate us to, to agonize in our prayers over others, filling our prayers with transcendent ideas and requests, and all of it so that you would be glorified And we would rejoice to see that take place. We pray this in the name of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus. Amen.